0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. This is Sportbox. We are live from London and Riyadh and here are your headlines.
1: Well, the countdown is on as investors here in Riyadh eagerly await the start to a Rampo IPO trading in just 30 minutes from now.
0: Mixed trade in the U.S. and Asia ahead of a deadline for new U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, while the market turns its attention to the Federal Reserve's rates decision due out later today.
2: Here in the UK, the pound weakening against the greenback after a new poll raises the prospect of a hung parliament as U.K. party leaders prepare for a final day of frantic campaigning ahead of tomorrow's general election.
3: Democrats formally announced two articles of impeachment against President Trump, making him the fourth U.S. president in history to face such charges.
0: So, good morning, everybody. After years of speculation and intrigue, Saudi Aramco will list on the Tadawal today in the world's biggest ever IPO. The oil giant has priced at 32 rials per share, raising $25.6 billion and giving it a valuation of $1.7 trillion. In just under 30 minutes, the opening auction for Aramco will start before continuous trading begins at 8.30 Central European time. Hadley is with us from Riyadh to help us understand just what will unfold over the next few hours. Good morning, Hadley.
1: Hey, good morning, Jeff. So it's difficult to overstate, of course, what this really means just for Aramco and more broadly, the Saudi economy, the Saudi state, and frankly, um, the perception of the leadership of this country's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Of course, this was his brainchild. This was the centerpiece, the focal point of his Saudi vision 2030 announced way back in 2016. Of course, there were high hopes in the first couple of years leading into this IPO that talks about an international listening potentially in Hong Kong, London, as well as New York City. All of that, of course, scaled back around the time of the murder. Of Jamal Khashoggi, and frankly, a lot of uh, speculation about whether or not this would ever actually come to fruition. Now, of course, fast forward from those attacks on Aramco in September on the Abqaiq facilities, we saw the government really getting on, putting their foot to the pedal here, and saying that this is something that they had to get to, that they had to make happen in a shorter time frame than even they had anticipated. And today, finally, in just a few minutes from now, we're going to see the fruition of those efforts. Listening to some of the comments that I've heard over the last couple of weeks from the Saudi brain trust, Saudi Arabia's energy Minister. as well as the Finance Minister.
4: Listen in. We have seen a demand uh, that is overwhelming, about five times oversubscribed. Um, The revenue, as part of the Vision 2030 strategy, the revenue that we are going to get from the IPO would go to PIF to fund PIF investments, uh, a lot of it inside Saudi Arabia to actually diversify the economy, stimulate the economy, support the growth and create more jobs. And some of it will go uh, internationally. It
3: would be maybe uh, reprimanded for divulging that. But the uh, bright day of my life, uh, one of the, I think it's the most, the brightest uh, and proudest day of my life. Is that when we de- decided to make this IPO more of uh, family and friend.
1: That was Saudi Arabia's energy minister, of course, His Royal Highness Abdullah bin Salman, speaking to me last week in Vienna, describing this as the biggest and brightest day of his life, a man with three decades in the energy industry. Most of that spent, of course, with Aramco, within the energy ministry here in Saudi Arabia. Just to give you a sense of how much psychologically this has had an impact on the Saudi state, you have to remember that some 5 million Saudis have gotten involved in this uh, retail uh, subscription. And we're talking about 13 percent of the Saudi population. Now, walking you through some of these numbers, you remember, of course, that in terms of who worked on this IPO. We had at least 25 banks working on it specifically. Nine are likely to get the bulk of the fees off the back of this city. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. Um, In terms of the Saudi institutions working on this, Samba Financial, as well as NCB Bank, it's really going to be interesting, I think, to take a step back here and think about what this could potentially mean going forward if we were to see, as some reports, particularly in The Wall Street Journal have suggested, an international listing in Q1. Of course, when we talk about the pricing of this IPO, something based on market sentiment, global sentiment, of course, would see uh, bigger proceeds potentially for the Saudi state. Remember, in that initial conversation I had uh, at that press conference back in 2016 with Mohammed bin Salman, the country's crown prince, he was looking for uh, as much as $100 billion in proceeds for the Saudi state off the back of what he was then uh, describing as a valuation that we could see even exceeding $2 trillion. That's, of course, been scaled back. We're now talking about around 25 to $26 billion for the Saudi coffers. That's something I've been asking ministers about in the last couple of Weeks, particularly the finance minister. You know how is this, along with lower oil prices, going to play into your budget? And remember, of course, that in terms of the Saudi budget uh, this year, we're talking about a budget that is not going to be expansionary. We're talking a budget that, while well, not totally austere, is at the same point, not one that we're going to see in terms of an an uncautious Saudi state. They've learned, I think, their lesson there, they're being a heck of a lot more realistic and cautious about what all of this could mean for them coming on down the pipe, particularly uh, with oil prices where they are today. And just to break it down for you, we're talking no longer, of course, about that 5%. We're talking about 1.5% of this company going to market later today. 1%, of course, institutional investors, a half a percent to retail buyers. When you break all of that down and kind of get to the nitty gritty, we're talking about Saudi government institutions allocating 13.2% of this institutional tranche, The final value of the tranche over $105 billion. The base dividend, of course, sitting at $75 billion in 2020, and that's been guaranteed uh, by the Saudi government. Saudi companies are going to make up um, of the final allocation of shares, 37.5%. Domestic asset managers and public equity funds, 26.3%. And again, i got to tell you, it's quite interesting to me, given the fact that uh, I've been following this story and the Saudi story for the last decade, how interesting it is that 5 million Saudis would be willing uh, to put their money where their mouth is and get Involved in this Ramco IPO, in spite of all the negativity that we've heard uh, surrounding it over the last year or so, guys.
0: Yeah, Hadley, there's so many ways in which we could take this conversation. We could talk about the business model. We could talk about the reluctance of international investors, or we could talk about the early Christmas present for a lot of those investment banks who've been involved in advising around this deal. But I just want to pick up on something you said, which I think was intriguing in the light of this story suggesting that Aramco is now sounding out Asian investors as potential participants in the next stage of the evolution of this company going public. What more do we know at this stage beyond the one or two stories that we see in the newspapers?
1: The folks that I've been speaking to, Jeff, not just here in Saudi Arabia, but more globally, says this would actually make sense given the fact uh, that they were oversubscribed in this local listing, given the fact that there still is a lot of interest surrounding their Ramco IPO. And frankly, uh, when we're talking about a Ramco, we're starting uh, until I mean, a few minutes from now, be a bit different. But until now, up to now, this, of course, is the crown jewel of the Saudi state. We're talking about a company that really is very much aligned to the government. That's always been one of the sticking points uh, from international investors in terms of uh, being able to have that separation between certs and state. But certainly in terms of that international listing folks that i've been speaking to say that that's more and more likely uh, a listing potentially in china a listing potentially in japan when we talk about yields japan looking much more attractive uh, to folks here in saudi arabia that's the buzz that we've been hearing remember of course new york and london come with their own set of problems not just additional investor scrutiny but of course when we're talking about the united states particularly in light of the murder of Jamon shoji of 9 11 and various other things including that shooting in Pensacola. Putting in a ramco listing in new york would open up that company open up the government of course uh, by by definition to lawsuits from the government so in terms of that international listing folks telling me that it is something that uh, they wouldn't be surprised would happen on down the pike and also that it's something that in asia uh, might be seemingly a little bit easier to uh, digest if you will
2: hadley excellent coverage thank you very much indeed and of course we'll touch base with you throughout this uh, very important day for saudi ramco and indeed for the saudi uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Right now, look. Credit Swiss. Good morning, Karen. By the way, good morning. We haven't seen each other on the shows <laughs> so far. It's been the quietest eight minutes of production they've ever had. Good morning, Geoffrey. Good morning, Steve. Right, man in the ship, man. Fle- Do you know someone who got the teas while we're doing that?
0: Yes, thank you very much. Oh, you know one actually? Yeah, lovely. Bit money brown. Ooh, made with
2: sticks. As <clears> they now say. look, here's nice a very interesting thing. Credit Swiss <laughs> used to be. Uh, back in 2015, used to be like a 24, 25, 26 Swiss franc stock. Now, if you take a chart from the start of 2016 to pretty much now where we're at, so the best part of four years, it's had a range of maximum around about 18, down to a low, just under 10 Swissy, but it's pretty much where it is on its current trading, i.e. this is where it's at, around about 13 Swissy, and it's been there or thereabouts, give or take, uh, a Swiss franc or two for most of the last four years. So what the current management team is trying to do is kind of basically pull itself out of that very tight range. And they've got an investor day today, and there are a whole host of flashes here talking about cyclical actions and indeed structural actions. Let me give you one structural action. David Miller is going to succeed James L. Amin as the CEO of the Investment Banking and Capital Markets. But in terms of what it wants to do over a longer term, and we'll get to uh, Jumana, who's been poring over these figures in a few moments time, 2020 targets, it says it aims approximately 175 basis points of return on tangible equity uplift. So, rote uplift of 175 basis points with additional upside in constructive market environment. What is a constructive market environment? I guess it means gently moving upwards, but we'll, we'll come to that maybe a little bit later on. 2020 targets aims to for a rote of somewhere in the region of 10%. At least 50% of net income expected to be paid out in 2020 through divvies and share buybacks. Now, I had a look at the divvy. Because I thought what the various factors given, especially on the back of that Aramco story, what people want. And we're speaking to Neil Beveridge later on from Bernstein saying investors want Divi. That's their measure. Well, on this company... Low dividend yield, 2.03% as well. So they are talking about at least 50% of net income expected to be paid out in 2020 through Divis and share buybacks. There's a whole host of other stuff on there. But I do not want to steal Jumana's thunder, who is looking through all of this as well, uh, who is at the Credit Suisse Investor Day in London. Jumana, what have you picked out as the most interesting features so far? Good morning to you.
5: Good morning to you guys. Uh, You know, Steve, listening to what you were saying and taking it back and looking at how the stock is on over the past five years, I think is the right way to approach this uh, because it's all about the revenues, isn't it? It's all about revenue generation. And if you remember last year, exactly one year ago, December 2018, Credit Suisse said that they were on track to get to that return on tangible equity target of 10% by the end of 2019, assuming revenue growth of around 6% according to some analysts. If you look at the revenue growth for this year. They've only tracked around 3%, which obviously entailed missing their return on tangible equity loose target for this year, which was 10%. They're tracking around 9.5%. So it's no surprise that that particular target is going to be revised lower. And from what we can see from the investor release today, they're aiming to be somewhat close to 10% and aiming for a pickup next year to the tune of 150 to 175 basis points. So still aiming to lift up that return on tangible equity target, but perhaps not as ambitious as it was before. In in previous times, they have said that they want to get that target up to around 12% by end of 2020. But obviously, it is a very difficult operating environment uh, for all banks and not just Credit Suisse. Another element that I want to draw to as well just two other objectives that they had for 2020 their cost targets they had a range between 16.4 billion uh, Swiss francs to 17 billion It looks like they're on track to, to get to come to cost savings of around 16 and a half billion so that is proceeding as uh, as they've outlined and the last point is something that you mentioned as well when it comes to share buybacks and overall for this year they've implemented about 700 million Swiss francs f- share buybacks 700 million. Swiss francs of dividends totaling around 1.4 billion again in line with their objectives. So I would say on the cost cutting front and on the share buyback front, uh, they're pretty much proceeding as planned. The return on tangible equity target, not so much. Now I had the opportunity to speak to the CEO, Mr. Tiam, back on their third quarter earnings on October the 30th and I asked him about whether or not they were going to get to that target by the end of the year. Let's listen to what he told me at the time.
2: If you look at that return on tangible equity that you, you're mentioning, we did 10 in Q2 and 9 in Q3. So we are tracking at that level. It's Q1. That was significantly below that, where we had a 4% drop in revenue. And that was exclusively due to uh, external circumstances. Q1, unfortunately, is a very important... Um, um, if you wish, it's the worst quarter where to lose revenue because the way banking works, Q1 and Q2 are the strong quarters. But 9%, honestly... When I look at results of other banks in this environment, uh, when we started this, the goal was to do okay in bad environments, and that 9% I think goes in that category.
5: So essentially there he's blaming the big mess on the return on tangible equity target on that weak Q1. They only had a a return on tangible equity there of 4%, second quarter, third quarter north of 9%, which explains why they didn't get to that 10% magic number for this year. But looking at at, at overall at the business, uh, one element that they've been very clear on over the past five years, again, going back to that five-year view that you mentioned, Steve, uh, they've reduced the size of the investment dramatically. In 2014, 60% 60% of the overall group revenues came from the investment bank. Today, we're looking like something like 18 to 20%. It's shrunk a lot. And in this environment, it certainly makes sense. Credit Suisse is looking more like a UBS from a revenue perspective uh, than, say, a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs. It has significantly shrunk uh, the size of the investment bank. And uh, uh, at the same time, it's also beefed up its a wealth management business. And net, net new money continues to grow quite healthy. So that's a part of the business that they continue to point to from a growth perspective, AUM continues to go in the right direction as well. So I suspect we'll hear more along those lines as the Investor Day continues over the next couple of hours. But we'll keep you posted on other highlights that come out of the meeting.
3: Jumana, thank you very much. In the meantime, I hope you uh, get some tea and warm-up as well. Coming up on the show, UK party leaders get set for a final campaign dash after a new poll suggests the race to Downing Street may be tighter than expected. Details next.
2: So, Jeff Cutmore likes a bit of older music, as I know you know. He likes the oldies, and I don't know if he goes back as far as Eddie Cochran. Let's just see if he's giving me a little nod. Eddie Cochran, three steps to heaven? He likes a bit of Eddie Cochran. Well, the markets like a bit of Eddie Cochran, whether they know it or not, because he, of course, is famous for that great ode three steps to heaven. But will the market get its three steps to heaven this week? Because what are those three steps? Well, one, it is a not too bullish Fed, of course, with the FOMC coming out as well. They want this Goldilocks scenario on the economic projections, on the interest rate scenario from the Federal Reserve. So that's step one. Step two, let's face it, the market wants to see pro- progress on the British Brexit story, which has been one of the big geopolitical overhangs on the market uh, for. A significant amount of time. And the third step to heaven could or could not happen potentially on December the 15th, which of course is will the tariff increases go through as well? So the three steps one, monetary policy, two, Brexit, and three, uh, over the US China relations as well. They are the three steps to heaven. In the meantime, the market, do you like that? In the meantime, the market just doing very little on the downside here. Uh, eight out of 11 sectors were in negative territory on the US indices ahead of those results of the, uh, dot plot projections. You're not going to get a rate cut today. That's my massive prediction. There you go, <laughs> which is about 800 to 1 on that you're not going to get one anyway. But uh, that Nasdaq, like 86.16, S&P 500 uh, trading 3.132. I think we've got some very big data out as well. So keep an eye on that as well. I think it's a CPI number coming through as well. This is what the Asian indices are doing. Seven-tenths of 1% higher. The Hang Seng, Shenzhen down two-tenths of 1%. And the opening calls for the European markets ahead, of course, what is a key 48 hours in British politics as well not a jot of movement on the major indices Karen when I say Eddie Cochran your eyes must go whoa yeah.
3: along with the international audience
2: <laughs> 19 no 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 he was an American rock and roll musician yeah do you not know along with the young, the young international, international audience, audience. No, Jeff? yeah you yeah yeah well the song
0: was originally about trying to get a girlfriend I think wasn't it hey isn't life three always steps about that? to heaven and then i um, maybe more <laughs> Your era. That's more under the mood of love, 1975, no? did, did Three Steps to Heaven. They, they, they re-released not. it. Yeah, they did. Did yeah, they really? Shawwaddy Waddy. Shawwaddy wadi There was a lot of the old hand clapping <laughs> going <laughs> down, oh, you down got to me the, down. the side.
3: <laughs> Shall we talk about a target of affection and also a little bit of waning affection too in the last 24 Indeed. hours, the pound, which has now weakened against the dollar after a new YouGov MRP poll raised the likelihood of a hung parliament in tomorrow's UK election. So we're now perched a 131.36 off some of the 131.80 highs we've seen recently. The Conservatives' predicted majority has been cut down to 28 seats from 68 two weeks ago, with nearest rivals Labour closing the gap on Boris Johnson's party. Willem joins us from central London ahead of today's final campaign push. Willem, just give us a sense of how much integrity these polls have. Also, we saw a Christmas-themed campaign from the Conservatives themed around love, actually. How has that gone down in this final push?
4: So in terms of that poll from uh, the MRP poll you just mentioned there, Karen, this was the one that back in 2017 turned out to be the most accurate. As you mentioned quite rightly, we've seen... The prediction in that poll in which 100,000 people across the United Kingdom were polled and interviewed, surveyed, shows that that lead for the Conservatives fallen to 28 points. If you look at the actual percentages in terms of national voting intention in the poll, they're pretty much the same. But because this gets very granular, goes constituency by constituency, you can see that in some of these very marginal areas of the UK, there seems to be a slight shift away from the Conservatives. But this is the important point. You mentioned the hung Parliament. That's because of the margin of error. There is still a possibility that even were that poll to prove more or less accurate, you could end up without the Conservatives having a clear outright majority. That's something that Boris Johnson says will lead to further parliamentary gridlock in the building behind me once a new parliamentary term begins. But of course, there are a number of people in the opposition parties saying that that's the only way to stop Boris Johnson and indeed to stop Brexit. Take a listen to what the various political leaders across the UK uh, talked about yesterday in some of their final campaign stops. This is uh, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party and Joe Swinson from the Liberal Democrats.
0: I think it is time for the whole country, symbolically, to get in the cab of a, of a JCB, of the Custard Colossus, and, and remove the current blockage that we have in our parliamentary system. That's what we need to do. We've put forward a manifesto, a
2: comprehensive programme for this country. It's a fully costed and funded programme and it will end the injustices and inequality and poverty in Britain and invest for the future. We're not into coalitions or tactical voting. We are determined to win this election.
3: What do we get from the Prime Minister? It's absolutely clear. We get lie after lie after lie. You know, the prime minister who said that he would guarantee the rights of those three million nationals from other EU countries. He said, he promised he would guarantee their rights. And how long, how long did it take before instead he was stoking hostility towards those very people in our country?
4: criticism there from Joe Swinson, the Liberal Democrats leader, about the integrity of Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, the man hoping to win a conservative majority to remain as prime minister. And of course, that has been a major attack line from a lot of his opponents over the course of this campaign about the issue of trust and truth, also a big part of this campaign. And of course, tactical voting makes this a very unusual election. We've heard from a lot of political figures from all parties, really, the idea that voters should obviously vote with their conscience, but also vote in favour of the party that has the best chance of upsetting the Conservatives. That certainly seems to have been a very frequent message from a lot of opposition politicians, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to
2: cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.